I always feel like I need to apologize to you because because I feel guilty that some of these movies are what they are. I'm just like, <laughs> I didn't make it. This isn't my fault. I kind of want to blame you, but I guess you, I can't really blame you. So, well, I picture you at home <laughs> watching these movies going, Patrick. I already have that kind of that expectation, and I know that they're going to be a little longer. It's going to be a format that I'm today we're not used to anymore. So you kind of have to have some patience. And yeah, I really drag my butt on these, but... Quit dragging your butt, Lauren. Welcome to the Award Goes To podcast, where we celebrate the films that have won Best Picture throughout the years and discuss the history of filmmaking one Oscar winner at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Patrick Pizzolarusso, and with me is... Lauren Olipra. Hooray. Hooray! On this episode, the award goes to All Quiet on the Western Front. Bang! No, no, no. It's supposed to be quiet. Be quiet. Bang. It's never really quiet. It's never, it's never quiet. really quiet on no, the Western Front. It never was. <sighs> oh. I know. Yeah. Well, this one best picture for the 1929-1930 season. Uh, it, these awards were in July of 1930. The third. And, uh, the third Oscar, the th- right? It was a third Oscar. Yeah. Um, like I said, it won Best Picture, and it also won Best Director. Lewis Milestone won for Best Directing. Okay, so we had Wings, which was the first Academy Award winner. Wings! Wings! I don't know why we love saying it like that. I don't um, know. I don't know. <laughs> but that one was war-based, mm-hmm. and it had the extraordinary aerial fight and pretty high budget and pretty great special effects. I feel like this one went so much farther with the pyrotechnics the the effects the explosions like it was it was like wings on steroids oh i would agree but i would i would also say that wings in my opinion did a little better job so they're different movies in that the the intention behind them totally Uh, this one is an anti-war movie and Wings, mm-hmm. I don't want to say Wings was a celebration of, of war, but it was it was more like, this is war. Yeah, and it was Hooray. more like love story with war. Yeah. Um, this one was also uh, known for its uh, the realistic and like harrowing depiction of World War One. Mm-hmm. And I remember studying in history, it was trench warfare. And it was, it was dirty, it was mean, it was bloody. Um and like when they say you're you're in the trenches, you're stuck there. There's yeah, most of them. From what I understand, most of that war was just you're stuck in a trench because, mm-hmm. unlike any other period of time, they had so much firepower. It wasn't like one side had the advantage over the other. They just it was just a slaughterhouse. So you that's, spent that's it, yeah. all of your time in the trenches because you couldn't move. The budget for this was one point twenty five million, and it didn't take that long for them to film this one either. So the Universal is the studio that uh, made this film. And so Universal Pictures and this uh, studio production head, which was Carl Lemley Jr., son of Carl Lemley, who founded um, Universal, they used uh, California ranch land for these battle scenes. And they employed 2,000 extras during the time when they were making the film. They also scoured four World War I vets. And I guess there were a fair amount of German vets from world war one living in california and so basically they were like yeah all of you come on that would make that would make sense because like there were scenes in in this movie where you could see very clearly that they were amputees like legitimate amputees because you can't fake that you know an amputee walking with crutches in that period of time we could now with you know cgi and stuff but you know, there's there's a scene later on where there is uh, somebody walking with crutches and, and clearly has an amputated amputated leg. And I thought, oh, he's probably just got his leg tucked up. But then I looked closer and I went, I think that's a real amputee. No, that was – yeah, I know which yeah. which person you're talking about. They're like crossing the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is 100% a real amputee, which is great. Like I feel I like mean, they should always use real amputee people because, you know, they need work too. They need of love course. too. A quick uh, recap. Or a summary. Uh, first of all, this is based on a novel by the same exact name, All Quiet on the Western Front. It's by Erich Maria Remarque. Uh, probably I like Mariah. your uh, Erich. Erich. Your little Erich. So the film basically follows a group of German schoolboys who are talked into enlisting at the beginning of World War I by their teacher who is, uh, if you remember this term, jingoism, people that are like, yeah, I'm all for it. Let's do it. Ah, what is it? Go it's jingoism? Jingo. Yeah. He's I've never very, heard of that. 
That's extreme patriotism. Like, we have to fight the war. We've got to do this for Germany. But Got it. There's no that their whole speech in the beginning where the school teacher whips them up into this frenzy to go join. There's never a reason of why we're fighting. We just have to fight. They all enlist. And it's interesting because this whole group of of schoolboys, they stay together the whole time as opposed to being sent to different squadrons and platoons or whatever. And we follow them all throughout the war and throughout the course of the movie one by one. They, all they get picked just, off. <laughs> just picked off. Yeah, and I feel I feel like they kind of all look to. I feel like the leader of this group is is Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul uh, who's played by Lou Ayers. Yeah, Lou uh, Ayers. Paul Bomber is the is the character I'm referring to. And you know, when they're in the school, the classroom, when they're all getting pumped up, and you can see their expressions, they're like drooling at the mouths to <laughs> sign up for war. going into war because this professor <laughs> is glorifying it all and saying you can all be heroes and and uh all of the oh and you can have all the ladies you want like he implies that too because he's just playing on all of the things that a young Mm -hmm. man would want you know and he's clearly an older man who never saw any sort of fighting in a war arena so everything he's talking about comes from uh whatever he studied be it literature any sort of romanticized version of war that's i think where his excitement comes from and then and so they go off thinking it's this this heroic deed that's going to be amazing yeah and it's a that they're going to be like superheroes and stuff yeah yeah and i kind of wonder so this professor his name is professor kentorik it almost seemed as if he was being paid to recruit kids it was like yeah it was like his main uh objective in this class not necessarily to teach but to get these kids prepped to to sign up, to get, like, to recruit, essentially. My feelings about him uh, are that he is living through them. Because of Yeah, his, okay, yeah, that would make sense. You know, his, I think it's his romanticized version of just the military in general, but going to war. And so I think he's living through them. And just to skip ahead, Paul comes back on leave later on. And this teacher is still doing the same exact thing. Yeah. But one, and is so excited to hear Paul's story. And, he, and at one point he says, like, back me up. Tell, tell them how amazing it is. It's, it's wonderful. And Paul's like, I can't, I can't do that. You, what are you talking about? So I think it's, he's, he's living through the boys that he sends off to war and maybe as they come back. Like gathering those stories, and it's—I think that's what it is. Or has or he even talked to anybody who's come back from the war until Paul? Oh, that's true. <laughs> you know, because to make it I can't imagine, like, because Paul, when he comes back on leave, is so crushed and broken as a human being that he can't even function. Like, yeah. if this professor had actually run into anyone else, other maybe like a superior officer who hasn't touched the trenches, but he, I would imagine if he talked to anybody else, he wouldn't. You know, he wouldn't have asked Paul to speak, number one. <laughs> no, no. And number two, he wouldn't have such a glorified vision of war. It's, uh, it, well, that's why I say it's it's definitely an anti-war movie. And it's interesting because that it is such, it comes across as such an anti-war film and book because uh, the writer, uh, Eric, nice. as you would say, <laughs> Eric considered himself apolitical. He didn't. He didn't see it as one side or another. He just wanted to tell the truth of of hmm. what war is. So it he never had the intention of of saying this is what war is like and and we shouldn't have war and he didn't feel the opposite way either. So it's very interesting because everyone else pegged it for being anti-war and I I do, you do clearly. It's it's just showing the truth of how futile the war actually is. Some nice things that I I noticed uh, just from the start of it. First of all, it starts with a title card. So I think that still in this time period, the films are still holding on to some of those older aspects of filmmaking. So there's a title card at the very beginning that kind of sets the scene. I mean, we still see it today, but it's very obvious a throwback and a throwback to what? Two years? <laughs> to silent films. <laughs> yeah. But we still start with that. But right after that, I thought that this was a brilliant thing that went away and we're starting to see it come back and it's the use of projection screens on set so the very beginning of it i think i think we're in a church there's a man cleaning 
doorknobs of the door of the church. And through the windows, you can see the German army marching by. And he opens up the doors. And that's a projection of that. I'm glad you brought that up because that was definitely something I noticed, Mm -hmm. like right off the bat. And, And not in a bad way. I actually noticed how real and how good it looked. Because, it looked so good. Yeah. Oftentimes in those old films, considering that it's a projection, you see the projection moving. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Moving separately from the actual physical, practical uh, sets and people that are in the shot. But this one was pretty perfect. It looked, you could tell, you, you know, we have a very discerning eye nowadays. We can, you know, with all of this, the technology that we that we have at hand with CGI and stuff. I feel like our eyes are a little bit more attuned to seeing those inaccuracies, but it was pretty dead on. It was really good. And I was impressed with that shot for sure. I'm pretty aware that I have not seen that until the Mandalorian, which is on Disney plus right now. That's how they film a ton of the scenes. With these projection. Oh, you need to watch. There's a series about the making of the Mandalorian. And anytime, uh, almost any set, Almost any set, definitely when he's in space, he is surrounded by, I'm going to say it's a 360 degree screen that is a star field. So their film, the stars are active behind him. It's a video of the stars moving and he's, the the, the only thing that's physical is him inside the cockpit of his ship. Or oh, there's, that's so cool. I'm going to watch that. There's some scenes where he's walking through the desert and the desert isn't there. It's just him on a soundstage and the pro- it's a projection of... It's so amazing. I like find this- that so interesting that we're like going back to basics. Yeah. Like we've we've gone, you know, so far with all of the technology in film and now we're going right back to where it started. It- I mean, this movie only uses it in just the very beginning. It only lasted for so long though. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because the same German army march continues as we go into the schoolroom where the professor is pumping up the kids and the window... <laughs> The windows are wide open during this. this <laughs> I know what you're I'm just like, say. I was so annoyed. I was so annoyed. I was so annoyed and, too. And let me just preface before we go into our little rants about the things <laughs> that we didn't enjoy about this film. Like, let's preface that we understand that this was like they were learning. Like, this is you know a great film. It had a great message and all that stuff. But I mean, it's so much fun to pick on things that were just kind of ridiculous. <sighs> so. It goes into the into the school where the professor is pumping up the kids and the and there's windows on giant windows on either side of the professor. He has a chalkboard behind him with whatever German lesson he's trying to teach <laughs> that he has abandoned in hopes of recruiting kids for the army. <laughs> and the military march is going on just outside and and it's so loud. And he's got the windows wide open and even cuz I had the subtitles on. I have to watch old movies with subtitles just because it is a little bit faster, and in order to really get everything that's said, I like to have the subtitles on. In the subtitles, it said, indiscernible talking. <laughs> he's drowned <laughs> out by the military. He's drowned <laughs> out. And it's like, I mean, clearly looking back, because he's trying to pump these kids up to go to, to sign up for war, I guess it kind of makes sense that he would have the windows open and having, like, the glory of the army I marching guess. by. But, like, I kind of feel like nobody would be able to closed. understand him. Yeah. Uh, eventually yeah. it fades into normal volume and they fade out the parade. But I had the same note. Like, he's just drowned out by a military parade. Something that really stuck out to me, because we've already sort of talked about how he whips them up, but one of the German boys screams out, No more classes! So that's a good reason to go to war. Because you don't have to go to school anymore. But hey, you're going to war. <laughs> they They go to basic training and... And at this point in the movie, they're boys playing soldier. And we start to see that change. But at the very beginning, they're boys just sort of playing the game of soldier. And I think that's most relevant with, and we didn't talk about this, but early on, before we get to the school, there's a scene with one of the world's happiest mailmen. Oh, God. I, okay. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot about like, him. He's probably my favorite part of the whole movie. Oh, he's... And I saw it, I went, all right, something's up with this guy. Because he's too <laughs> his, happy. It's uh, Himmelstoss. Himmelstoss. Exactly. Himmelstoss. And he's your friendly mailman. And I went, he's too happy, which means that either he's going to die at the end, or there's <laughs> going to be some sort of, there's a turn. There's going to be, uh, I was waiting for the turn of uh, mailman Himmelstoss, uh, because cause he's pointed out in the beginning. 
So we see him super yeah, happy. Yeah, he's like one of the first now. characters you see. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then and then the boys all go to war and it turns out that he's their he's their commanding officer at basic he's training. Like- corporal i guess something he's well he talks about early on how he's in the reserves and he's very proud of the fact that he's in the reserve and he's been called up so he's happy to be going to war because everybody is uh but but when the boys see him they're all from the same town so they're all really happy to see the friendly neighborhood mailman who becomes an asshole (laughs) oh my god he goes on a power trip from hell oh my god it's (laughs) he's like remember that mail that you didn't pick up right now's my time for retribution uh it's it's maybe like the napoleon Napoleon complex Complex. yeah Yeah. it's like a power trip Um, and he he turns it on but he's also a character that has not truly seen war because Mm -hmm. of his level within the military which we find out later, um, he's so he yeah because he's like he he initially I think he becomes the drill sergeant yes right because he's the that's one that's what like he is. training them and yelling at them and you know doing all of the the typical he's things throwing them into the of. mud so one of the kids um, I don't know his name because there were a lot of them I know Paul because Paul was the main character that we sort of follow throughout but one of his fellow soldier boys looked like Wally. From Leave It to Beaver. <laughs> well, I don't know if really? I don't know if you were forced to watch that as a child. I did. And <laughs> I, I, actually I did watch it when I was. I, I looked up, it up but... and I went, "Oh, it's it's not even close." Nor would he. No, be yeah, that I think age. I can see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I really was like, "Is that Wally?" But it wasn't close. <laughs> but so if you watch this, just keep an eye out for the fake Wally from Leave It to Beaver. Well, and it's funny that you hit on that point because I felt really lost in a lot of it because all of these boys looked the same to me. Oh, so much the I, same. Do you did you find that cuz I I struggle with that in older movies, so many people look exactly the same that I I have a hard time discerning the different characters. They look exactly Paul, the same. Paul I was able to like follow, but that's because he was the main character. And, but and it was I supposed will say, to be like very much an ensemble film. He was the main character that I didn't realize was the main character until yeah. about halfway. Exactly, me too, me too. And then I went, oh, somebody I can follow, because I have no idea who anybody else is. Oh, his name is Paul, because they finally said yeah. his name. There was a lot of humor in this, which I didn't expect to be so much humor. Definitely appreciated the fact that, okay, they're trying to make light of certain situations. Um, one of them early on is this moment with a pig. They're all in basic training, and they're all... Oh, no, I think this, they, get to the, they get to the front. They go straight to the front after basic yeah, training. Yeah, they do. That's it. They this do. Send them to the front. <laughs> Which I think did happen. It, I'm sure. Because they yeah. just needed soldiers. And later yeah. on in the movie, we see that like they're just sending kids now. They're just, we're running out mm-hmm. of soldiers. Just just keep, keep they're them coming. Just, it's just a body count. Yeah. But they get to the front and they're starving. And they're surrounded by a handful of vets. They've been there for a while. They know the ins and outs of things. And one of them steals a pig. <laughs> Is it cat? Cat, which I thought. Yeah. Was oh, cap. I like cat. I did too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought he was cap, as in captain, until I think the very end of the movie. I went, oh, his name is Cat. K. Yeah, I think I knew because I had the subtitles on. <laughs> uh, see, That's why I that, that helps. One. Yeah, because cat is uh, short for Kaczynski. That's it. But yeah, he's he's like he looks like, and I, he looks very familiar, and I'm sure I've seen him in a bunch of other things, but he looks like the quintessential boxer, because he's got the boxer he's nose. He's the tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the tough guy. He he could be in a mob movie. He's got the nose that looks like it's been broken several times yeah. and, and put back together. And so he, because it's so sad, because the, the army, they don't feed their army. Here's oh. all the glory. They show up, they're going through hell, and then they're not even feeding them. So this veteran cat uh is out always basically searching <laughs> for scraps for food. and food scrounging for food yeah this one scene he he sneaks under i don't know like a, a truck um as people are loading it with pig carcasses and he, he i think the truck starts to roll away so he does something to make the truck leave and the guy that's there tossing pigs into it runs after the truck and so he just sort of stands up they toss him a pig and he walks off screen with the pig and so yeah they can eat pig and i thought that's great that's a funny gag but there were little bits like that all throughout which i thought it's nice to also balance this with some levity yeah you some need of the, some yeah some of the images in it are pretty disturbing because it's oh god there's one that really stood out to me and i don't know if you if you saw this and it was a split second I know and which i one you're really talking about. really I liked it. it 
Oh yeah, mm-hmm. is it the hands? Yes. Oh my god, wire. it's amazing that that's yeah that that stood out for you because it is it, it's probably a millisecond. It's mm-hmm. probably like a couple frames, but they're. I think this is when they're really. Uh, sh- there's there, it's a like a montage of the horrors that they see when they first get on the front, and it's just you know bombs and and people falling and shells and all of this stuff, and it's a millisecond of you see the the barbed wire that's stretched across the the trenches, and there's two hands that are clenched onto the barbed wire, but they're just hands. They're cut off. Uh, at the wrists and they're right next to each other as if somebody been, had been holding on to the barbed wire and somebody came and just sliced the hands off and they're just still holding on there. Yeah. And they're, it, I don't know whether it's because it was such a flash that it looked so real, but it was quick though. out of all, yeah, all of the, of the visuals that they show in this particular montage, that one stuck with me and clearly it stuck with you. Yeah. It was so effective. I, w- it- I give props to that. That was a really good, little thing to stick in there shortly after that that moment i think we're like 40 minutes into the movie and i realize they're they've gone through basic training they're in the front about 40 minutes in they're all just starting to crack because they're kids they can't handle it and i think that's you know seeing that that image of those hands on the barbed wire it's just Mm -hmm. adding to it and they're literally starting to crack under uh pressure and there's a moment inside the trench in their little bunker in there where one of the nameless many is freaking out. And so Cat <laughs> <Kat> punches him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's and how they is, did it back then. If you, if, if you were cracking up, you just got a swift, swift kick to the face, you know? But there is no sound. There's no nothing. <laughs> it's a silent punch. And then I think he punches him a second time. And it's still, there's no sound. And so I'm curious if back then... They were juggling so many different aspects of this new format. So I wonder if they were like, well, you know what? We can do two sound effects at once. So I can do your dialogue <laughs> and I can do the explosions, but I can't do a punch. So Yeah, I mean, that's that's a legitimate thing because I was thinking about that. It, the difference between Wings and this movie as far as the special effects go, I feel like in Wings, what they were doing always landed as real and plausible. Mm-hmm. In this, even though there was a lot more explosion – there was a way more of, of like you'll see an explosion going off, and then the person who's next to it, who clearly looks like they didn't get hurt at all, just <laughs> flops over and dies. And it yeah. just, it happened over and over and over in these essential times where you know somebody would get seriously hurt, but it was just this little boop. You know, it was this little thing that went off maybe ten feet away from them, and then they they just it happens, and then they just fall over. Uh, didn't look. Like, it was that bad, guys. It looks like just a bad firework. Maybe an hour in, I realized they didn't even try with accents. These are all American (laughs) accents. Uh, There might be one or two thrown in there that are German-sounding. They meet these three French girls at some point, and they're all speaking just French, which was great. I like that they weren't also speaking English, but they didn't attempt a German accent in any point during this movie and we're yeah. following the German army. Yeah. I mean the only reason that I knew right off that they were German was from the the pointy hats. The helmets. The helmets. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, "Oh, Kaiser, Kaiser rolls." Uh, <laughs> I automatically go to Kaiser rolls. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this, they would have loved some Kaiser rolls back then because they, they had no have. food. Yeah, and the, oh, so there was a scene where Essentially, they got their their boots handed to them, and there was half of the company was left. Where this uh, uh, army chef has a giant vat of what looks like baked beans, <laughs> and he's he is so, so proud of his baked beans, and all of the soldiers are just ravenous, and they want their food, they want their rations, but they feel like they deserve more because they just went through hell, and the military cook is like. No, you can't have it. I I was told that this is the rations were supposed to be for 150 people. You're 80 people. I cooked way more. He was so upset that yeah. he didn't get the accurate count for his food, so that he messed up his portions. And the soldiers are like, "Well, then just give us more because we deserve more. We were just clobbered." And he shuts the vat on them yeah, and, and pretty much like, doesn't even want to feed them at all. He says, "I have enough food to feed you twice. How dare you?" You yes. did not. <laughs> yeah. That's what he says. Yeah. Like, what? 
until there's an officer that comes and is like some outranking ridiculous yeah yeah it's like take open the give them give everybody let them have as much as they want there's a, a couple really nice shots that happen uh, fairly close to each other there's one scene where they are they're advancing and they're advancing on a church which has a graveyard in front of it and they're also being bombarded by uh, aerial assault. And one of the soldiers, I think it's Paul, but I don't want to say for sure. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> who knows? At this point, I didn't know who Paul was. Falls yeah. into a crater left behind by a, a shell, but it's also an open grave. And so he falls into this grave, or there was a, a casket in it. He falls into it, and there's a shot of him looking out uh, through the casket and he sees you can see like in the foreground slightly out of focus uh a piece of fabric so obviously he's looking at the remains of a deceased person and and in that moment i was like he's gonna die uh it was beautiful foreshadowing to see him in a grave a uh french soldier that jumps into the trench i think this is also his first kill which kind of messes with his head a little bit yeah so they it is a french soldier and he just out of desperation mm-hmm. of fight or fight or flight, he stabs him, but then immediately realizes he's like, I, I don't have any qualms yeah. with this person. They're French, but they're just like me. Why are we doing this? Everybody, we're all the same. I don't even know this person. And I just killed them in a fight because some big wig somewhere decided that they wanted to have a war. Mm-hmm. And so he, he he stabs him, and the guy's dying, and then he, Paul starts to do anything he can to try to save this guy. Yeah, he has, like, I don't want to say it's an instant 180, because they're in that in that crater for a while, but I yeah, think- Yeah, it's hard to tell time in this movie, though. I think being in that space with the person he just stabbed for even a few hours, I think that's what starts to turn him around, and he realizes, what have I just done? And in whose name have I done? Like, why did I do that? There's no reason- even- he even vows to find the guy's family mm-hmm. and take care of the the wife and the kids for the rest of their lives. And like, he was, he's just shattered. And then the minute he gets back to his uh, war, war buddies, his comrades, he tells them, oh, I just killed somebody. And they're like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They were like, hooray. Good job. And the more we talk about this, like these different scenes, and I keep saying, I realize I keep saying, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, how much time passed between this and that. Now I'm kind of wondering as I'm saying this, if that's intentional. Not to make it. Uh, personal, but I've definitely spoken to my dad um, a little bit here and there who was drafted into Vietnam, and he has commented on, after a while, you just, you lose all track of what day of the week it is, because it's so monotonous. It's the same thing every single day, and for you yourself, you forget how long you're there. It, It feels like you've been there for years, but you've only been there for a week. And so I'm sure they were trying to portray that on film. At this point in the movie, it's starting to get very repetitive, and it's the same, we're in the trench, we're in the bunker, we're in the trench, we're in the bunker, things are falling on our heads. And it's just a very repetitive view of how war drags on and on. Well, and then throughout it, we see they start to, one by one, are are dying, are getting wounded to the point that they are losing limbs. Um, Can we talk about the first amputee? Is it Franz? (laughs) So I think it's one of the first. It is. one of the In my notes, I have the first one. Because I have like, and now starts the moment where one by one, they all start to die. Yeah, they start to die. (laughs) Now there is a guy named uh, Ben, B-E-H-N, who's blinded. And he just hysterically runs into machine gun fire and he dies. So I I can't remember whether he was first or if it was Kemrick. That was their first taste. Oh, I think it's, of but it's really close. Dying. Yeah, yeah, because they start to die pretty fast after this. So, <laughs> spoiler alert: <laughs> war is hell. Yeah, spoiler alert about the whole story. So anyway, they go to all the guys go to see Kemrick, who is in the hospital, and there's like hundreds of people in this hospital, and he's not in a. He's like, my foot hurts. My my right foot. It hurts really bad. And then they look down and they see that he doesn't have a right foot anymore. It's been amputated, so it must be like a ghost. What do they call that? A phantom pain. Phantom, phantom limb. limb. Yeah. And he's he's asking phantom for the doctor, limb. and so Paul. But yeah, Paul goes to the doctor, and the doctor's just so he's <laughs> frigid. He looks over at him, and he's like, "Oh, I I've done all I can for him." Yep. And he's like, "My friend is dying," and he's like, "Eh." Wow. And then his friends, so 
I know. I found this humorous, I, I too. Understand, I understand <laughs> the the device that the boots play, and I think it is brilliant that the vi- the device that the boots play. But Kemmerich has these really kick-ass shoes, right? These really nice, fine leather boots, which is kind of strange that he would have different boots army issued than the rest of the guys but i didn't understand that and later on i mean it's black and white but later on we see them with other boots and i'm like they look the same they all look the same his were like a lighter shade i guess but they were a lighter shade because as you see because they're boots that kind of get past it's like the (laughs) the 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 sisterhood of the traveling (laughs) pants is like the brotherhood of the (laughs) of the leather boots so we've got kamrick he's in pain he has no right foot he's dying he's on a cot in this in this uh, hospital with hundreds of people with doctors who don't give a crap. And so Paul goes over and asks the the doctor if he can help him. And meanwhile, Mueller goes underneath his bed and sees these nice shiny boots. These guys are supposed to be childhood friends. (laughs) And he's just, all he cares about are these boots, which it, it does make sense because you're so desensitized from the war. But at the same time, this is like one of the first good friends that, is in this situation and is dying. Yeah. I see this being something relevant later on after a lot of, of their friends have died, but being that it's one of the first friends dying and that he only cares about these boots and their, their, their feet are killing them. They've been marching and all like the feet are, we have a friend who was in the military and he preaches over and over like, your feet are the first thing that you care for when you're in the military because th- those are the first things to go and those are the things that are going to carry you, you know, throughout your journey. So I understand that these boots are important, <laughs> but even as this guy is in pain and is dying, he's like, so, uh, <laughs> you, if you pass, can I, can I have your boots? I don't even and think he wants so- it to pass. He's like, you're not going to use them. Can I have oh them Oh my now? God. He's convincing the dead or the dying guy that he, he doesn't need these. Bo- yeah. And it's so mean. You don't need these anymore. You only have one foot. Like, that is so awful. Like I almost laughed at the scene because- with the acting style of back then, it's a, it's so over the top. It was very clownish. Yeah. I mean, everybody, though, yeah. looks at him. And I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. Stop. You don't ask him about <laughs> his boots. And he literally is like, but he's not going to use them. I get it. And it's so sad because everybody except for Paul just leaves. <laughs> and do. Paul like, well, can't get the hangs boots. out. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And so Paul hangs out with him until he dies, still trying to get mm-hmm. the doctor to help him. And is there. And one of the – one of – uh. His Kemmerich's last words is, give Mueller my boots. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, fuck Mueller. Like, I don't know if we can cuss, but I'm like, fuck Mueller. Paul deserves the boots. He was there till the very end for him. But it turns out good because these boots end up being cursed. Like one after the next, the boots get passed on from friend to friend and every person who gets the boots dies. Boots won't keep you alive. Like nothing is, no matter what you think, great, you have more comfortable shoes. That doesn't give you an edge. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no edge. And they do edge. a really cool like shot with each person who inherits the boots. That's why I noticed that the boots were a slightly lighter color because when they're marching, they were standing out like, oh, this person's wearing the boots now and then they die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> these, these scenes of war are interlaced with um, them, not necessarily on leave, but a little bit more relaxed. And there's a moment where they're... They're all hanging out on uh, the bank of a river, and they're all- Oh, God, I can't wait to yeah, talk about they're this. They're all bathing, <laughs> and they see these French women on the other side of the river, and of course, they start flirting and flexing and, and posturing for them. And, a and German, they're all naked. They're all naked. They're all naked in the, the river, yeah. The, the, the men the are women. all naked. The women are just on the other side of the river trying to do whatever they're doing for the day. But they're all flirting, and the women have- no interest at all <laughs> until one of them goes and gets food and shows them that he's got, I think, sausage and bread, cheese and bread. Oh, my God. But I think I missed – and I couldn't wait to talk to you about this part mm-hmm. because I missed – if the, if it was there, I missed the part where he goes and gets the sausage and bread. Oh, yeah. All I saw was he went under the water <laughs> and then comes up out of the water with a giant sausage and a loaf of bread and i'm like where the hell did he get this and also they're so excited but this was now river soggy bread lauren it's, lauren you haven't lived until you've had where river did bread. he get this food from i, I he he did leave he leaves like right before oh because to me idea. he just popped up out of the water and he's like hey ladies and he just brings this up they're just happy to get food they're like yeah come on over because we just want your food 
Yeah, because they they keep saying no and and saying go away until the guy produces produces the water from the or excuse me the food from the water, <laughs> and then they're like, oh, oh come hey, on, big over. boy, yeah. So they sneak over in the middle of the night, of course, and they they pair off um, because there's there's three women, there's three guys that go over there. Um, Paul is one of them, and I have to say, there's a really I love this shot. Of Paul, and he's with one of the women whose name is, uh, name is Suzanne. And he's basically, they don't understand each other at all. And he's telling her that when he leaves, he's not going to remember her. But the shot is of just, it's just a static shot of a room in this little house. And you just hear them talking. And you don't see them at all. And I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah, and it's interesting because the girl in response, didn't really care so much about not being able to see him again. She's just super excited that he's a soldier. To be honest, this scene kind of grossed me out a little bit just from a female perspective, because clearly the the women only really want the food. So when the guys show up that night, uh, I think they're, they're, oh yeah, they're naked. So the girls give them Oh yeah. Some of their clothes they show. So they toss out some clothes for the guys. So they're wearing women's clothes essentially. And the guys come in and they bring the food and the women are just, they chow down. And while they're chowing down because they're starving, the guys kind of go stand by their preferred lady and they're like looming over them. And I know it didn't, this you. is not the intention of this of the scene. It's just kind of how the times were at the time. But I was just thinking like, oh my God, now they're expected to like put out, like these women are automatically be- became whores for food. It was never portrayed that they didn't want the men in return, but clearly, like, as the men are flirting, they're just stuffing their mouths, and it's like, sex was the last thing on their mind, but I guess they're not opposed to it. That's better than sex. It was just how the men came in, and they're like, we gave you food, now, uh, how you doing? You know? It was kind of gross. So shortly after leaving the French ladies, uh, they head to another hospital where there are more wounded. And it's pointed out that it's a Catholic hospital. And I thought, does that mean it's... But the way he said it, it's like, oh, we're in a Catholic hospital. Like, so, it's, like it's posh. Yeah, so lean back, boys, and enjoy the ride. But there was nothing... Well, I mean, it's definitely better than the than the like makeshift hospital they were in before. That's true. Yeah, but I think maybe it's still, that's it, that it's like a legit hospital. Still like of a, wartime, but it, I think it probably was a little bit... Because it actually had, like, standing walls and it, instead and, of just, like, a tent. And actual beds, not cots. Um, another one of the uh, one of the guys loses a leg. And he has this whole thing about not wanting to go home and not wanting to live life as a cripple. We have to think about it. These – sure, this movie was made in 1930, but it's talking about 1917. Trying to find work, trying to have a full life, all of that stuff with with a missing leg – um, I think there's probably a huge stigma back then to an amputee. Yeah, everything that you want, like getting the ladies is going to be harder. Getting work mm-hmm. is going to be harder. It's just a, a rougher world. Yeah, and he did not want to live as an amputee. The next scene, Paul goes home on leave. And this is when I realize that war changes you. And there's that that saying of you can never go home. You can never go back to the way things were. You can never go home and war changes you to a point that when you go home, it's like you can't relate to that world anymore, especially right off the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, and the people the people in your life can't relate mm-hmm. to you because they don't know what you've been through. And it it's really exemplified in, in his experience when he goes home. He's talking to his father and his father is all for the war and just talking about heroes and pushing through to Paris and He's just sitting there at the table listening to this, but he can't contribute because it's just like, you all are just fools. You don't know what you're talking about. He's not allowed to put in his two cents. You know, the one that's actually the soldier on the front. He's not given the opportunity to give his two cents and his perspective. They all know what's best, but I'm pretty sure none of them have ever been to war. And so... He just walks away. I love the fact that he just gets up and he leaves. And they're still there arguing. They don't even notice that he leaves. Um, this is the moment where he then goes uh, and he meets the professor. And I, my note that I have in here is, fuck that professor. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He's awful. So his mom is ill. And he's, he, he goes back to his home. He's got his sister. 
there and she's like, oh, mother is ill. Uh, he's bantering back and forth with his sister talking about, you know, times when they were young and definitely points out on the wall without a l- big transition, just kind of like, hey, remember this, this, this butterfly on the wall? There's a butterfly collection that's up on the wall. And the dialogue there was, it wasn't the best uh, banter back and forth, but they make sure to point out this childhood memory of the butterfly that they caught together and it's now on the wall. But then he goes in to see his mom and his mom is really the only person that he kind of can relate to uh, because she's not, she's not asking him for the glory of the war and like what he's doing and are you a hero? She's more concerned for his actual being, who he is, doesn't really want him to go back, obviously. She's the only one but even then, that is concerned yeah, about his well-being as yeah, opposed yeah. to the well-being, I guess, of Germany and the country uh, because of the machine of war. She's concerned about her son. She still sees him as a son. It's just so sad because he, he's he got like four days left of leave. Oh, yeah. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to take him. He's done. He wants to go back to this hell. Which is such a very interesting headspace to be in that you would rather be where things are real and where death is prevalent than in this fantasy world where people like things just aren't the same anymore. I I can't even imagine. And when he gets back, this is when we really notice how young the new recruits are. And this is the moment where you realize, okay, well, yes, Germany is losing the war and they are they're strapped for all resources including bodies, soldiers, and they're just sending them younger and younger. And these boys even say the youngest is 16 to go to war. Yep, he talks to him. Yeah, yeah he talks to a 16-year-old new recruit. And it's the, what is it, the second, what do they call it? Not platoon. The battalion? Second, battalion. I believe that's what they're a part of is the second battalion. And this little kid who he's never seen before, who's 16 years old, is like, oh, this is it. He's like, no, where's the rest of them? And he's like, this is this it. Is but it. we're going to get we're gonna get 150 more. I think there's 150 in each battalion mm. or something. But they just keep getting wiped out. It's just it's just a, like a, a waste of human life. It is. Like, it's just so pointless. And you, you – it really – that point is really hit home in that moment. But in that moment, I think he realizes he doesn't even fit in there. So he goes off to go find food. He meets up with Kat. And uh, they're walking, and they uh, there's a, a a biplane flying. Yeah, because Cat is out uh, searching, scrounging for some more scrounging food. Scrounging for for pig carcasses. Yeah, and there's a plane flying overhead that spots them and starts dropping bombs in their area. So they're they're trying to keep a low profile. They're trying to escape. Um, this is one of those moments where a bomb goes off near them. And you're like, oh, it missed them. Great. Everybody back on your feet. Yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah. Hold on. It hit Cat somehow. I did not see yeah. that coming. I feel like I should and, have and seen it coming. And messed up his leg, yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I, I did. I saw it coming. Yeah. I knew it. Because at that point, everyone else was dead. I guess because the bomb was so far away from him, I didn't expect him to be so wounded. And then I went, Yeah, but oh. we had already seen it happen so many yeah. times in this film that I was like, oh, that probably really did hurt him, yeah. even though it was like yards away. So Cat's leg gets messed up, and Paul carries him back to their barracks, but on the walk there, another bomb goes off near them and hits... In a way, Cat saves Paul, because basically it's like a, a human shield, but it hits Cat in the back of the head, some shrapnel or whatever, and when he, he finally gets him back to the, the barracks, and he's like, great, he's going to be fine, and he's already dead. Yeah. And I think in that moment, Paul has has absolutely lost all hope. He's lost everything. He walks away extremely dejected. Yeah, because he even says when he's chatting with Kat, because they're talking about how he was on leave, and he's like, oh, is it nice? Is it, you know, how is it back there? And he pretty much says, I just missed you, mm. to be honest. You're the only, well, you're the also and the only so, one left. <laughs> yeah, the only one left. But, like, he, he was eager to get back and see Kat, and, and then he dies. he dies. It's just so sad. And then the next scene, he's back in the trenches, and a butterfly lands just on the other side of this little area, literally within arm's reach. And he stops, he puts his gun down, and he reaches for the butterfly, which ties into what Lauren was saying before. When he's home, he sees the, the butterflies on the wall. And he, it, it, to me, I was like, he found beauty in the middle of, of a terrible thing. He found beauty and he found this peaceful creature and he reaches out to try to, I guess, get it to hop on his hand or whatever. 
And while this is happening, a French soldier is very sneakily <laughs> creeping along. Yeah. And we see the hand reaching for the butterfly and we hear the gunshot. And there's a, like a, a shake, a shake, a shake. And then his hand goes numb. And then that's the end of the movie. And they have all died. I thought it was a little strange that, like, I understand what they were going for with the last image. But, like, he's in the trenches. He makes a choice to go into the danger zone. Like, you go up above this this point and you're going to, like, bullets are flying. You're going to get shot. But it, it is saying something that he he knows how dangerous it is to go up above this level of safety of the trench. And he still does it to try to get this butterfly. So it's interesting. Like, what is your opinion, what the butterfly represents? Uh, I think it's he's he's kind of given up on war itself once Cat leaves. So he sees the butterfly as just something pure and innocent and a thing of beauty in this horrible place and kind of reaches for the only bit like that tiny little bit of probably color too, even though this movie isn't black and white. Oh yeah, good point. It would be the only thing that is colorful in this dark, muddy, gross, whatever. In that moment, I i mean, I kind of figured it was going to go that direction, but there was a moment where I, I kind of personally as the viewer wanted to see the sharpshooter on the French side seeing that he's reaching for the butterfly would not sh- decide to not shoot. Yeah. Because that would have really nailed the point that both sides are the same. I thought that was that's how it was going to happen. Yeah. And then he shot him. Yeah. So I thought it was very interesting that when the book came out, Nazi Germany banned and burned mm-hmm. the book because it deflated the the glorious aspect of war. It makes sense that they would do that because they were terrible. But then when the film came out, Germany and Austria banned the film because it impaired the German reputation. Mm-hmm. So this is such a really remarkable impactful film so it does deserve all the accolades that it gets it's just kind of hard to sit through to be honest I mean, we're, we're also picking it apart from modern day point of view of um, course we but are at and the that's time, why i tried to preface that in the beginning yeah hey lauren were there any yes. quotes uh that stood out to you to be honest it was hard because <laughs> there was so much this was not an easy was, one actually it's, it's hard but it's not hard because like for anybody who's like deep and not a child like me there's plenty of quotes to be had because there's a lot of deep stuff and like war sucks and all that stuff. But <laughs> one of the guys, I can't remember who it was. I think it's Paul straddles up to the bar and he says to, to the the server, give me your best sausage. Yes! That's one of mine. Which I knew like, that's why we're friends. I love that you went for that one. <laughs> give me your best sausage. God, that's such a good one. For me, there were a couple of good ones. The deep one, I found one that was actually really deep. Uh, and it says they're talking about war and what it's like. And we we talked about this, about how it seems like it's never ending. And I think it's Kat who says every day a year, every night a century. I was like, oh, I was yes. Like, Ooh, that's nice. I remember that one specifically because I was like, yeah, that's the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it. This is, I feel like, my favorite part of the podcast. Did you come up with a drink that would pair well with this movie? I I did, but it's not going to be impressive and you're going to win. Okay. But I did it on, on principle. Okay. So you go All first. All right. So the drink that I came up with, French 75, and it's a drink. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. It's a gin-based yeah. drink, which is gin was uh, a popular drink around that time into the 20s and 30s. Um, and the French 75 was a, a French artillery weapon they named it the the french 75 because they said it's so it's got such a kick it's like being hit with one of the shells from this gun called the french 75s and uh and it's gin it's lemon juice simple syrup and then champagne on top yeah it's good i've had that before and it's real good and even though like you're gonna win this one i still went with a very simple drink and it's on principle because it's a shot nothing wrong with shots well, I mean, like, I'm not a big shot person, but because of how hard it is to get through this movie, oh I say just take a take a shot of Jägermeister oh. and then just push through because it's German. You know what? And it's awful. Nobody wants to take it, but there you kind of have to do it as a rite of passage. I'm gonna. So it's just like that war. I'm gonna help you with this because I think I think that's actually a really good choice, and I think you could turn all quiet on the Western Front into a drinking game. And do a shot of Jaeger every time someone dies. 
Oh, that's right? good. You'd be so schnockered. Is that German? You'd be schnockered by the yeah. end of this film. Every time someone dies or gets a leg amputated. Oh, that's a good one, too, because there's a lot of that. I just wanted to mention a couple more things just because I thought they were super interesting. Um, we talked about the producer of this movie, which was uh, Carl Lemley Jr., who was the son of Carl Lemley, who was the founder of Universal Pictures. And when I looked him up, he had a couple of, because I love finding like quirky, weird things about movies especially when the movie is so deadly serious a lot of people didn't respect him because they were like oh nepotism who is this guy and um junior he was (laughs) junior (laughs) and he was just a little guy he was like five how he was five three and he was a notorious hypochondriac he was also responsible for just a few movies that you might have heard of some iconic characters dracula Mm, okay frankenstein the mummy oh the invisible man and Bride of Frankenstein. So he was in charge of Universal's monsters. He basically Cream. created that whole phenomenon of the, you know, the iconic monsters of the time. Well done, Carl. Which is super Lemley cool. Jr. But then both both of the Lemleys, father and son, were booted by Universal later because they were spending way too much money on movies and not getting the payback, the returns. Uh, so, <laughs> kind sad. of a bummer. No. But we should mention how people can uh, interact with us. Yes. So if you like what we're doing. And uh, you also want to see some more behind-the-scenes stuff or some images or some more facts about uh, these all these movies that we're, we're covering. We're doing a pretty good job. And getting the recipes from our oh, cocktails. Oh, yes. Not to mention the recipes from our cocktails. Our podcast has its official Instagram, which is the Award Goes To Podcast. So follow us there. If you're a, a Twitter person, we are there at Award Goes P-Cast. That's terrible. Award Goes That's terrible. P-Cast. <laughs> You'll find it. You'll find it. <laughs> Gross. Uh, but definitely follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter. And uh, like, subscribe. If you want to give us a review, that would be awesome. Because that helps other people yeah. see us. And that about does it for this episode of The Award Goes To with Patrick and Lauren. And what do we have up next? Up next, up next is Cimarron. <laughs> Cimarron. Cimarron. Which I think that's a, that's a spice used in baking. It, uh, sure. Which won for the 1930 1931 Academy Awards. And uh, we'll cover that the next uh, episode. This is a terrible ending. <laughs> <laughs>